The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Take Off with John Clark. And we are joined by a very special guest as we're talking about the Sixers and going out in the second round once again. The man who last led the Sixers to the Eastern Conference Finals 22 years ago, Hall of Fame coach Larry Brown. Larry, we appreciate the time. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you. Always good to talk to Philly people. You know Philadelphia is honest and real and authentic, so everybody was pretty upset here, Larry, that the Sixers went out in the second round again. You know how tough it is to get to the Eastern Conference Finals, but I wanted to know from you, how did you feel when you heard the news that Doc Rivers was fired? You know, I uh, I got to coach Doc um, when I was with coaching the Clippers years ago, and he was amazing. I had a great experience with him. And then uh, he got fired one time. And I remember John Calipari and I used to have a, you know, clinic. And we used to bring people in that, you know, just to network that had lost jobs and, you know, got to know Doc a lot. Um, he's a great coach, but it's part of the profession. You know, when you, when you coach in Philly and, you know, you've made the changes they've made. And you have the, you know, MB who was MVP and Harden and young kid like Maxie. You know, everybody has high expectations, but there's a lot of quality teams out there. And, you know, part of your job is people expect you to go to the finals and hopefully win once in a while. And if it doesn't happen, they move on. But, uh, you know, he's a fine coach. Uh, I, I was a little angry with him because he fired my best friend, Mike Woodson, one year um, with the Clippers. And Mike and I have family, but I got over it. What do you think of the coaching profession right now when you see Doc fired? Then you see Mike Budenholzer fired, Nick Nurse fired. Um, you have other guys like Monty Williams uh, they, he led the Suns to the finals two years ago. Um, Frank Vogel, you, you've got all these guys who have been in the finals or won a title over the last four years, and they're out of jobs. What do you think of the profession right now? I don't know. Um, you know, there's so many young kids coming into the league now. Um, and I look, be, you know, on these benches now, I see 15 people all dressed the same. Um, and it kind of troubles me. Uh you know, when I started coaching, it was Doug Moe and I, and we were both searching to find ourselves to figure out how to do the job. But um, you could really establish a relationship with the players. Uh, now it's different. I think so many people are looking out there to try to find somebody young that they think can communicate better with young players. And I, and I don't buy it. And I find 
you know, I get to go all over watching people coach. And um, I think a lot of people are afraid to coach these guys. Um, and it troubles me. And a lot of these young kids, you know, aren't getting coached the way when I grew up. Um, whatever a coach said to you, you know, you respected him enough and you did what you were told and you knew that he cared about you and was trying to make you better. And then when you were young, you really didn't get to play right away. You had to earn the right to play. And you were playing behind older guys that you watched and learned from. And then when you did get the opportunity to play, you respected every minute you got. But I think I look around the league now, you know, because players are making so much money that in a lot of cases, I think sometimes the players are kind of running the teams. And you could understand that guys making 40 and 50 million dollars, um, you know, they're going to have some say. But, you know, my my way of thinking, you know, I took over nine teams Eight of them had losing records. And uh, I remember going with my staff. And I said, you know, after the first three practices, they're going to know whether we can coach or not. And that's really going to be important. And they said, yeah, yeah, we better be prepared. And then I said, and then after a number of practices, they're going to know if we can win or not. And they said, yeah, that's, that's also important, coach. And then I said, I'll tell you a third thing. After a number of practices, they'll know if we can make them better. And they all said, oh, yeah, that's the most important, because if you can make them better, they'll make more money. And I said, no, the most important thing is if they know you care and trust you. I said, that trumps everything. And that's the most difficult thing to get. And obviously right now, the big question for the Sixers is James Harden because they kind of put all of their eggs into that basket going with James Harden. He's going to be 34 years old in August. And there's reports out there that he disagreed with doc on some things, or maybe did not have the best relationship. And he talked about sacrificing being a facilitator and a playmaker more so this year than being a scorer. Um, do you think, with these reports that he may go back to Houston, that he wants to go back to being the scorer, James Harden? You know, I don't I don't know what, you know, James' motivation is. I, you know, one summer I got to work out with him and Sean Livingston, you know, in California. I was coaching, I was going to coach Charlotte. And Michael wanted me to work out with Sean Livingston, who we got as a free agent after he had a serious knee injury. And I worked out with James and, and, and Sean, and it was an amazing experience to be around and watch how hard he worked. I've never got to coach him. You know, I don't know anything about the relationship he's, he has with Doc. You know, but I really, when I watched this year, I thought he was trying to make sacrifices to make the team better. You know, and I really admired what he was doing. Um, but the important thing, you know, if if a player and a coach leaves, loses trust in one another, it's a very difficult thing to overcome and uh, correct. And uh, so I don't know what the motives are. I, I just think 
Philly with the talent they have and with some of the younger players, you know, having the ability to get better, you know, I'd have a hard time breaking that up, you know, but, you know, they know better than I do because they're around each other every, every day. And um, when they determine who the next coach coming in, I think the next coach has to have an unbelievable relationship with Joel and also Harden if Harden's going to stay, if it's going to work. Joel is obviously the crown jewel of the organization, like Brett Brown used to call him. And he was shocked and disappointed that they fired Doc Rivers. Does that surprise you in any way that if Joel had a great relationship with Doc and wanted him to stay, that they they wouldn't side with Joel or kind of go with his opinion? I, I don't know about those dynamics. I'm, I'm proud of Joel for standing behind his coach. You know, I love that that part of it. When your best player comes out and says he's disappointed about the coach getting fired, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. You know, I uh, I know Joel indirectly because uh, when I was at SMU, one of his people told me to go down to Florida and scout this big kid playing an AAU event, and he didn't even start. And I watched them warm up and I went crazy and I loved them. But unfortunately, Kansas, you know, was smart enough to sign them and recruit them. But uh, I've always admired the guy and admired how he played. And he's a KU guy, so I'm all for that. Yeah, and, and Joel obviously keeps getting better. Um, but do you think, like there's this debate in Philly, do you think that, he needs to play more down low. Uh, sometimes maybe it's because of fatigue in the postseason. Sometimes he's hanging around the three-point line. Do you think he needs to get down low more and use his size more? I'm not his coach. Um, you know, I don't go to practice every day. I don't know his strengths and weaknesses like Doc would. I'm an old-school guy. I think you got to throw the ball inside. You got to flatten the defense out. You got to get to the free throw line. I'm not, I'm not an analytic driven guy. You know, I did analytics when I was 14 years old. I knew a good shot and a bad shot. I knew the best players had to take the most shots. I knew if you out rebounded a team, got to the free throw line more than the team, took care of the ball, took great shots. You had a chance to win. And the biggest thing, if you're struggling offensively, if you have the ability to stop other people, you're going to always have a chance to win. So the way I look at the game now, it's three-point driven. You know, everybody stands out on the three-point line, spreads you out. You know, it takes a three or a two. And I've never understand why people don't spend more time talking about if you got Joel in foul trouble, where is he going to be? He's going to be, his ass is going to be sitting on the bench. If you run him 94 feet every possession, where is he going to be at halftime? How effective is he going to be? And to me, I watched him this year. I thought he got in much better shape, um, which I think is critical when you get older, especially with big people. But in my way of thinking, the great players make other players around them better. 
And simply by his presence, he does that. You know, we had Allen, and Allen wasn't, you know, a down-low player, but he got to the free-throw line. He broke defenses down, you know, and, you know, he was a threat. And because he was a threat, he made everybody around him better. And I think if you throw the ball to Joel Embiid, in my mind, on the block, he's going to create interest from everybody. He's going to make everybody around him better. And I don't know how you can guard him one-on-one. So, And when he shoots a three, in my mind, is he on the board? And does he have the ability to get back? You know, it, so, but again, you know, he's great. And I'm sure Doc knows Joel Embiid better than I do. I'm just that old school kind of coach, get fouled, get to the free throw line, share the ball, you know, defend your ass off, rebound the ball, get back on the break. And the more practices that I go see, less people do basketball specific drills. You know, they have guys shooting threes, anybody shoots a three, you know, they don't even rebound their own ball. They don't do drills to, in my mind, to make kids better. We have all these workout coaches, these performance coaches. I want to see basketball coaches keep teaching kids how to play. That's my frustration. Kids are more talented, more athletic, but they're also younger and less experienced. And with social media and the people around them that demand that they play right away, that to me is a difficult thing for a coach to navigate. Larry, you bring up a great point because in game six, the Sixers were up one or up two on the Celtics with like five minutes to go. And Joel Embiid did not touch the ball for the last, let's say, four and a half minutes of the game. And afterwards, he talked about not touching the ball. But does he need to demand the ball? You know, I don't know. Um, You know, you look at Harris and Maxi, you know, and Harden. You got a lot of threats out there. Um, You know, with me, generally, when I coached, it was pretty easy. We had Allen. And we were dumb if we didn't throw him the ball. and he'd be mad at me if we didn't. And he'd be very clear to me and let him know that throw me the ball, I'll figure out a way to help us win. But, you know, I'm pretty confident Doc told them to throw the ball down low. Uh, you know, Doc doesn't win all the games that he's won in the past and won a championship. I'm pretty confident. It, it might have been something that Boston did defensively, you know, Guys might have felt they were open and uh, they had the ability to make a shot. You know? But again, it, it's it's from day one for me that if you have a player like Joel or Allen Iverson or Michael Jordan or Kobe or Shaq, you know, everybody on the team knows if you want to win the game when it's winning time, those guys need the ball in their hands because if you remember in one of the big games when Harden hit the three in the corner, who touched the ball first? Yep. It's Joel. And he came out of a timeout. And obviously, Doc told him, draw the defense and throw it to James. And so 
I'm pretty confident he probably mentioned that to the team. You don't you don't get as far as they got and win as many games as they won with everybody on the team understanding he should be our first, second, and third option. And I'm pretty confident Doc told him that. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Larry, you raised a great point about the free throws. When you're in that situation in game six, when they could have won the series at home and Joel didn't touch the ball, you had guys missing shots. I believe the Sixers missed nine straight shots, but Joel is a great free throw shooter. And if he is down low and he gets fouled and he's going to line, he is most likely going to make those free throws. And at some points, that is your best offense. Would you agree? Oh, no, I agree. And, and again, I know Doc well enough. You know, I'm, I'm pretty confident when Philly goes to play a game, and it's crunch time. You know, it's winning time. They want the ball in, his, you know, your best player's hands. Um, you know, Harden had games where he gets to the free throw line. He breaks the defense down. If he doesn't get his shot, doesn't get fouled, he'll find somebody. You know, but but again, you know, old school in my mind, if you throw the ball down low, in my mind, you flatten the defense out. You have a chance to get fouled. You have a chance to get an offensive rebound. Like you said, you have a great free throw shooter. You have a very unselfish big guy that if he draws the double team, he's going to find somebody. And let's think about this. Who was guarding Joel most of that series? It wasn't Williams. Al Horford. You know, it was Al Horford. And as great as Al is, he's an undersized center. You know, he did a great job on him. You know, he did as good a job as you can. But nobody one-on-one, in my mind, can stop Joel. And, again, I'm not in the timeout. I'm not at practice. Uh, and I'm not the coach of Philly. And probably a reason that I'm not coaching is I'm old school. But I've always felt, with all the analytics stuff, you know, it's not an equal, equal opportunity sport. You know, all my teams, they didn't shoot a lot of three-pointers, but they shot a high percentage of three-point shots, and the better three-point shooters shot it. And we try to get to the free-throw line. We try to get fouled. And if you get to the free-throw line on a shot, what kind of shot are you generally shooting? Pretty high percentage shot. You have a better chance to rebound it and a much better chance to stop the break. And the NBA is predicated on getting out in transition and taking quick shots before the defense gets set. But they don't ever look at the analytics. What happens when you take a quick three and a bad three? How does it affect your team? We don't do a lot of analytics on that. So, you know, my mind is Doc knows he's there every day. He knows the strengths and weaknesses of his team. I'm sure they play the way he wants them to play. And he's had a lot of success doing that. 
And Joel, you raised another good point because Joel, as you said, nobody can guard him one-on-one, but you see different times where he's aggressive and then sometimes where he's not. And PJ Tucker during that game four, he got in his face and said the same thing you just said, Joel, we need you to take over. Do you think there's some players like AI who are just born that way, who want that ball at all times and are aggressive. And there's other guys, maybe like Joel, who kind of have to grow into it to, to, to get that mindset, to just take it to the defense at all times. Again, I, you know, I know Joel indirectly, you know, I, I'm not, a, I'm not around him like I was with Allen, you know, Allen felt he could win every game. Allen felt he wanted the responsibility to take every big shot. And I've been around a lot of players like that. There's some guys that want to take the game-winning shot, and if they miss it, ah. There's other guys that want to take the game-winning shot, and if they miss it, they're sick to their stomach. Allen was like that. I don't, I don't know Joel enough but I'm confident that he's the kind of guy that wants to take the responsibility of taking the last shot. Um, I do believe that over the course of his career, me just watching him, that the better shape he got himself in, the better player he became. Because Doc could play him more. He, he had to be more active on the defensive end as well. Because, you know, with a guy like Tim and teams going small so much, you know, he has to be out on the floor a lot. He has to be running 94 feet a lot. Um, so I think the biggest thing with him, to me, in my mind, is as you get older, you got to be in better, much better shape. But from an outsider looking in, old school like I am, I want the ball inside. I swear, I'm not opposed to a great two. When everybody's saying, no, you can't take twos, we got to take a layup or a three. I can't imagine not getting a great player in foul trouble and having his ass like, look at last night's game. Jokic had to sit on the bench because he got in foul trouble. So he didn't get in foul trouble trying to block three-point shots. He got in foul trouble trying to protect the rim or people going at him with Anthony Davis. And I can't imagine Joel not getting everybody in America in foul trouble or at least causing double teams to make everybody around them better. I, I love what you're saying about Joel. And, and then you talked about the transition points. It's it's a, you know, make or miss. If, if you're making threes, okay. But if you're missing them, like you talked about, it is transition the other way. And that, that was one of the big things in the Sixers Celtic series. Now, about James Harden, how difficult do you think it is to go back and forth at certain points during a game, being a facilitator, being a playmaker, then trying to be a scorer? Because he's had a, a scorer's mindset for most of his career. Do you think that's tough for him going back and forth? Oh, I'm sure it is. But, you know, I admired the hell out of him when, you know, this year he tried to make himself, you know, a true point guard. I even saw him guarding better you know, making a concerted effort to be a much better defender. Um, and I had a lot of admiration for him. But I I can't imagine going through your career 
averaging 28, 29, having the ball in your hands all the time, and then all of a sudden, you know, becoming a facilitator and a second or third or fourth option. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I went to Detroit, it was the only team I ever took over that had a winning record. And I had Chauncey Billups and Rip Hamilton on, on our team. And we didn't start off great. And I remember calling Rip and Chauncey in. And I said, look, what I'm asking you two guys to do is much different than you had to do before. And and I know it's a sacrifice that you're both going to have to make in order for us to really be good. But I told Chauncey, in order for us to be great, you got to be our first line of defense. And then you got to make everybody around you better. And you got to trust me enough. Well, when it comes down to critical times, we'll run things to allow you to shoot the ball because you're such a great shooter. And I said to Rip, basically the same thing. And they left my meeting and Rip came back. And I had a feeling that Chauncey didn't get what I said. And Rip said, coach, I got you. And from then on, the sacrifices those two guys made to help our team win was incredible. Um, they both defended, they both shared the ball, they both made everybody around them better. And I can't tell you how many big shots both of them made. And there wasn't one guy on our team that didn't understand the sacrifices they were making, which is a huge thing for the you know everybody to understand. Well, I'll tell you, I always tell people, I think the coaching job you did in 2001 with Allen Iverson and that team is, is the greatest coaching job I've seen in our city. And then you go to Detroit. I think that is the last time an NBA championship was won without a true superstar player, I believe, in the NBA. I'll argue that one. You know, one, <laughs> I don't think in 2001 we would have won. But people forget George Lynch didn't play. Geiger almost refused to play. You know, we were starting Jermaine Jones. If you remember, um, we had to play Todd McCullough against Shaq. And the only way you could beat Shaq at that time is if he had 18 fouls in the middle. You know, and we would have had the Kembe Geiger and Todd. And George, you know, was somebody that was so unselfish, could guard and could defend. But, you know, we gave him a good series. They were a phenomenal team. But I argue with people. People equate superstars basically on one end you know there's Russell was different you know he's a defender shot blocker you know Nate Thurman maybe was different but people in my mind it's what the effect you have on your team Ben Wallace was a superstar Rasheed Wallace was a superstar they dictated the outcome of the game you know I look at you mentioned um I'm having a senior moment. The guy who got on a Embiid, who I, I'm a Tucker. Oh, PJ Tucker, yeah. You you look at his stats and you say, why the hell is Doc playing him? Well, he hustles every minute of every game. He does all the little things to make the people around him better, and he cares about one thing: it's winning. Allen had guys like that all over the court, you know. Every time we'd bring in, and you know this, they'd bring in Tony Kuko, they'd bring in Keith Van Horn, they'd bring in Glenn Robinson, they'd bring in Chris Weber, they'd 
bring in Matt Hartbring. Well, it didn't matter about those guys. It mattered about Eric Snow and Roger Bell and Aaron McKee and George Lynch and Tyrone Hill and Dikembe because they allowed Allen to be Allen. And I think that's the way you have to build a team. And with Joel Embiid, in my mind, find those pieces. You got you got a lot of good ones. And, um, you know, hopefully they'll continue to get better. Do you think Joel Embiid, because he does care. He was, he was talking after the season with Daryl Morey and the Sixers about ways he can improve, spots on the floor where he can get a, a shot and get better. Do you think that he will eventually get over the hump? Uh, it, it seems like there's some of those games in crunch time, like game seven, game six, where the offense disappears a little bit or they're not passing the ball as much. The ball stops. Do you think, though, that Joel has it in him to get over the hump? I do. You know, Del Morey is different from me. He has a different idea how to play the game. And it's been successful. You know, he's a shoot the ball in the first seven seconds. You know, you're going to get a great shot before the defense is set. He wants threes. He wants twos. How does that relate to Joel Embiid? You know, and I think they have to find this happy medium in my mind. But, you know, there's no doubt in my mind he didn't win MVP. It wasn't a fluke. You know, there were a lot of guys that had unbelievable years. But Joel was phenomenal. And, you know, I I think there's always growth in kids that care, that want to get better, that learn from failure. I'm not saying it was his failure, maybe a team's failure based on the expectations we have. But that's the only way you learn. How do you deal with failure? And I think hearing your your comments about what he said, I'm pretty confident he's going to come out, you know, with the right kind of mentality. And I'm pretty confident a guy like Tucker, in my mind, makes me feel like my way is not so bad because you get those competitive guys that are role players that want to make their teammates better, that will do anything it takes to win. You can be successful with those kind of people around you. So do you think the way the game is played nowadays, shooting a lot of threes, basically having shooters on the outside, there's not a whole lot of big men in this game. Do you think that the Sixers can win with Joel Embiid shooting the ball or shooting threes as much as they do? They were the best three-point shooting team in the NBA in the regular season, but the game has changed so much. You talked about analytics. Do you think they can win with Joel Embiid? Yeah. there's no doubt in my mind, you know, they can win with Joel Embiid. He's he's as good a player as we have in the league. When you have a, you know, to me, a star is somebody that every time you go down the court commands double teams. Or when you're in the locker room before the game, the visiting coach is talking about ways to stop Joel Embiid. You know, how do we do that? Um, again, I my way is a little different. I, I think you win consistently with defense, rebounding, and unselfish play and playing harder than anybody. I think those things, no matter what, I used to write on the board, play hard, play smart, play together, have fun. 
And then when I was with Coach Smith, I asked him, would you mind if under that I put, it'd be nice if we rebounded and defended. <laughs> now, there wasn't one thing about shooting the ball. You know, people tease me about my comment about playing the right way. I should have, you know, set that up where people knew I was the one that said that first. I, I probably would have made a lot of money. But I don't think you can win a championship unless you can guard, unless you can rebound, unless you take great shots. I I, I truly – and I – you know, I got a call from Detroit the other day, and they have Wasserman, you know, the big kid from Memphis, Wiseman, excuse me. And yeah. they have Jalen Dern, the kid from Philly, who I got to be around in Memphis. And they're, they asked me, do you think we could play with two big young guys at the same time? I said, you're damn right. You know, they can rebound. They can run. They're athletic enough to – switch and guard people out on the floor and by asking them to do things that are difficult right now you're going to make them better in the long run so it gets back to me and again this is heresy we have all these performance coaches and workout coaches we need teachers we need guys to teach kids how to play because so many of the young these young kids because they're so good and so talented People are afraid to coach them, hold them accountable. It's not the kid's fault. Kids want to be taught. And I think we're getting away from that. We're so caught up in gearing our game to certain areas instead of teaching kids how to play basketball. Yeah, and right now the Sixers are looking for a new coach. They're going to interview Nick Nurse, Mike Budenholzer. Uh, as well as Monty Williams, Sam Cassell, who, who was on Doc's staff, and some other guys. Um, is, is there a, a guy that you really, really like that, that would be the next Sixers coach? And Jay Wright. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it I don't think he'd take it, but there's no better coach in America. But you just named some really terrific coaches. The biggest thing, Morey's gonna hire the guy he wants. And it's so vital that the coach and the GM are connected at the hip. There can't be any separation between the coach and the general manager. They might have differences. They might have arguments. They might have different opinions. But the players can never know that. And when things go bad, they definitely can't know that. So I'm hopeful if Maury makes the decision, he brings somebody in that relates to him and that he trusts and that can bring out the very best in some of the young talent they have and tell Joel B, we, Joel, we, we love you. We honor you. We respect you. Get your ass in the best shape you possibly can. And you'll be the biggest monster that's ever played in the NBA. Do you think that really is the key? And Joel's had injuries, of course. Uh, he was injured again playing with a sprained LCL, and it could have even been a grade two sprained LCL. How much do you think that affects him in those crunch times of game six and game seven, and you see him sometimes with his hands on his knees? Oh, I'm sure it affected him throughout the whole series. You know, it's hard. You know, there's not a player in the NBA that doesn't play hurt. 
you know, you don't have any time to recover. You play so many games in such a short period of time. But, you know, I don't think you can ever be 100% if your knees are in trouble. Um, but, you know, I remember all the big guys that I was lucky enough to coach. As they got older, they lost weight because the pounding and the wear and tear night in and night out, the heavier you are, the more difficult it becomes. So, and he could lose a lot of weight and never affect him. His strength is never an issue. Yeah. His, you know, I I think it bodes well for anybody, any player, no matter what position you play in the NBA, as you get older, it's important to lose weight. So you said Jay Wright, uh, a lot of people think he would be a perfect candidate. Do you think Jay will coach again? I'm not sure. I speak to him a lot. He's pretty happy now. He's spending time with family. You know, he loves Villanova. I don't think he'd ever take another college job yeah. because of his relationship to Villanova. Um, and I I hope I'm not speaking out of line. I, I, I never want to speak on, you know, about what somebody should do, but uh, I think he's the very best coach or as good as any coach I've ever been around. And the, the two years I was in Philly and I wasn't working, I lived in Villanova. And I think I went to more practices at Villanova than Jay did because <laughs> he had a recruit once in a while. And I was, I was always there. I, I marveled at his ability to communicate to the kids and get them to do what he asked them to do without exception. And I, I go all over now. You know, the other day I, I was um, in a, a high school tournament and um, one of his kids, Alan, you know, little backcourt, Alan Ray. Yeah. He was sitting next to me and we spent an hour just talking about Coach Wright and that team with Kyle Lowry and all, you know, I mean, it it was it was wonderful for me because every kid that ever played for Jay talks about him like I do. He's just so special. Yeah, and and you know it's interesting because Jay Jay always has a great expression: "Don't mess with happy." And he's got a great gig now. Uh, the NBA, with the way you see coaches being fired for you know Doc Rivers, they had the third best regular season record. They went to the second round, game seven twice. Um, and he had to deal with Ben Simmons. Um, so, so why would Jay take that chance? Oh, I don't know. You know, I, that's just me. If I yeah. was, you know, Mr. Snyder one time asked me to run the team and like a dummy, I didn't accept it. But, uh, if I was sitting in Philly and I had a position like Morey, you know, my relationship with Jay, I'd, I'd pick him in a minute. You know, I trust him. I know he cares about kids. And like I said to you earlier, kids want to play for a coach that they know cares. And that's the hardest thing to develop is that relationship where they know you care. And Jay's had that ability. I've never seen a guy. Well, I've, I've been around some, but he could get on a kid so hard. And two minutes later, they're kissing on the lips. You know, because they know he loves you and cares. And I I think that's important in the NBA today. You can't be the kind of coach that's aloof. You know, and that's why I'm troubled when I see 13 or 14 coaches out there 
you have three coaches champion one guy and three coaches champion another guy. You know, I don't I don't even know if the kids really know who to listen to. Yeah. They want to be respectful for everybody, but who the hell do you listen to? You know, when I thought it was easy, you had three assistants. And if I was the head coach, I was fortunate. They listen to all of us because they're hearing one message. And it's always the same. You know, and now, and then they're dealing with so many younger kids. It's unbelievable. When you look, you know, I, I saw Jermon Green come out and said, Curry, Trey, and I are the best threesome that's ever played in the NBA. And I'm saying to myself, what about Julius, Malone, Barkley? I, I, or what about Bird, Magic, and Mikhail? And then you can put in Dennis Johnson in there and Bill Walton in there. What about Kareem, James Worthy, and Magic? And I, I could go on and on and on. And you look at the league then, there were no young kids playing. You know, they were all older guys. You know, when Isaiah won with Detroit, look at that team. You know, Joe Dumars, you know, Isaiah, and then you had Lambeer, you either had, you know, you had Mark Aguirre, you know, coming off the bench, you had Sally and Rodman, you had Johnson, Vinnie Johnson, you had even, you had other guys like Rick Mahorn, you know, and James, uh, having a, James Edwards. I mean, teams, teams were nine, 10, 11 deep. Now we have all these young kids coming off the bench playing before they're truly ready. So that puts more pressure on the coach and more pressure on a kid like MB. And speaking of that, let's say James Harden does go back to Houston. Like the reports are saying, Uh, he's got a great relationship with the ownership there. That's his, that's his home. His mom is there. So let's say he does leave the Sixers. Uh, where do you go from here? I mean, really the free agents, you're not able to spend the money that you were able to give James Harden because of the NBA rules. So would you surround Joel with the type of players like you talked about PJ Tucker and try to get a real true point guard? Well, look at Miami. Think about that team. You know, Riley is ahead of everybody. You do it Miami's way or you go somewhere else. He is the head and everybody follows suit. And if you don't play hard, you don't play together, you don't do what the coach says, you're not going to be there. And they're in the finals without Tyler Hero and Adopo. Think about that. That's mind-boggling to me. But I think, you know, when you have a great player – you know, like Joel, you can't replace Harden, but you got to find pieces around now that come in and allow Joel to be Joel. I think they'll be able to do that. Um, you're not going to replace Harden's assists. You're not going to re- replace the points, but you got to find people that make Joel better. You know, they used to complain about Harris. Well, shoot, you can't replace Harris. You know, they got some young pieces there and hopefully, you know, they'll be able to reach out. And like you said, find somebody that can defend his ass off, will share the ball and it'll be tough as hell and maybe find a couple of them. You know, I was a Ben Simmons guy. Everybody used to laugh at me 
saying, oh, he's got to shoot the three. No, when he was there, he could guard, he could rebound, and he was an amazing passer. Unfortunately, he was hurt all the time. But how can you replace his ability to guard, the fact that he could rebound, and the fact that he was an amazing passer? And everybody said, well, he had to shoot the three. No, Allen didn't shoot a lot of threes. You know, he wanted to, but he got to the free throw line. You know, he got layups. Um, there's a lot of great players that don't shoot threes that are highly productive. But Ben Simmons did become a liability because he was not good at shooting free throws. He didn't get better at that. And that was, you know, a whole other story where he passed up the dunk. Well, let people work on that. Yeah. You know, by the way, you you brought up rocket. It's not rocket science. You know, the shot never changes. You know, the one thing I've always felt about being in the NBA, unlike any other situation, if you want to become a great shooter, you can become better. You have all this opportunity to shoot the ball. They got this unbelievable workout facility in Camden. It's open for the players 24 hours a day. And if it was Kobe Bryant, he'd be in there 20 of them. So, <laughs> You're right. So if you, if you really care about improving, knowing that your career is not that long, your ass is going to be in that workout facility every day working on the things you don't do well and trying to get better at. And I think sometimes you might need somebody that pulls you there. That when you say, no, I'm too tired, I don't want to go. No, no. You got this responsibility to be there. I'll be there. You be there with me. Well, the Sixers finally have that guy with P.J. Tucker. Oh, boy. And do you know, he tried out for our team when I was in Philly. And he went to the Summer League with Dave Hanners, who is the coach. And they won the Summer League. And we had contract problems and were too dumb to sign him. He went to Europe. And now he's back, and he impacts every team he plays on in a positive way. How cool is that? You're right. You're exactly right. Uh, by the way, Philly, Philly's a little miffed watching this Celtics Heat series, of course, because the Celtics moved on, but also because the Sixers had Jimmy Butler. And that was a big decision because it was Ben Simmons and his agent. Um, reportedly, they they wanted the ball. He needed to be the point guard, and Jimmy Jimmy Butler, he also wanted the ball, and maybe he's the alpha male, and Ben couldn't handle it. So there's a lot of debates and dilemmas and egos in the NBA, huh? I guess. You know, that's why I lost my last job in the NBA. You know, but um, God, Jimmy Butler's great, and I'm Amazing. a big Ben. I'm a big Ben Simmons fan, and you know, I saw him in Montverde Academy when he was came over from Australia as a sophomore and he was as good a young player as I've ever seen. And I, I tried like hell to recruit him, but we had no shot, but, uh, you know, I, again, and, and I'm selfish about this, but sometimes it's the environment you're in. It's the ownership you're involved with or the coaches you're in touch with that determine you know, your trajectory as a player. And, you know, some guys get in a situation where they respect the people around and they just flourish. Other guys, 
get in a situation where they don't really feel very comfortable and they don't reach their potential. You know, this is the last thing. I used to stand up whenever I go see a college team play and I'd always, you know, they'd always ask me to talk and everybody wanted to ask me about Alan naturally, but um, I always used to ask them, Hey, tell me all, all you guys in this line, how many are you think you're going to play in the NBA? And they all look at each other, you know, waiting to see whose hand's going to go up and, and who won't. But generally, every one of them put their hand up. Like they all felt they're going in the NBA. And I said, God bless you. I hope every one of you make it. But there's a little over 400 players in the NBA, I tell them. And it's not only in the United States now. It's all over the world that we're getting players. But the reality is, out of the over 400 players, only 20 of them are superstars, or what they call superstars. The rest of us are all role players. So if you can learn to be a factor with your team and make everybody better and accept the role you're given, it's unbelievable how your trajectory will improve, just like B.J. Tucker. And there's a place, Bruce Brown, look at Bruce Brown, you know, the impact he had on the game. There's guys like that every single night that sacrifice to all the little things and help the great players become great. Well said. My, my final question is, was the process worth it? Because they got Joel Embiid out of it and they are an elite eight team every year, let's say. Was the process worth it? Look at how long it took. Look at all the first picks they had. I don't buy that. I'm not I'm not into that process. But, but they got Joel because they were smart enough to take him because he was hurt as the third pick. Unfortunately, Fultz got hurt. You know, Ben's situation. I didn't think they made a bad pick with Ben. You know, I didn't think they made a bad pick with Fultz. I, you know, I, I was a college coach watching him play AAU. I thought he was great, but you know, you just got to get lucky. Look at us. My first year in Philly, um, San Antonio had no shot at getting the first pick. The only reason they were in the lottery is David Robinson had gotten hurt. Patino was expected to get one and three with Boston. And when I took over, we, we won 21 games. So Philly had a great chance. I'm with my family, and it comes down to Boston gets three and five. All of a sudden, it's between us and San Antonio, and my kids' family is so happy because Pop worked for me, and they said, Dad, this is going to be great. You or Pop is going to get the number one pick, and boom. You know, we get two, they get Duncan. So number two was Keith Van Horn. David Falk wouldn't allow Keith Van Horn to come with us. They got Tim Duncan. Pop starts out coaching Tim Duncan and David Robinson at the same time. Van Horn, Van Horn didn't want to come. David Falk didn't want him to come. But we got rid of all our bad contracts, you know, and got in role players and allowed us to build a team to play with Allen, which turned out pretty good, but not like if you're going to get Tim Duncan. <laughs> and, the, and Pop's got his guy again. Unbelievable. Think about it. Bob Hill won 60 games the year before. David got hurt. 
They win 30 games, Pop fires them, and they get Tim Duncan to play with David Robinson. And then they made some unbelievable great draft picks, you know, with Ginobili and Parker. And But think about it. Now they got this guy, Juan Anabi, and oh, my God. And he's he's coming back. That's amazing. Yeah, he'll, yeah. he'll coach till he's 100 now. Till the kid puts it up. That's right. All right, so, Larry, your choice is Jay Wright for next Sixers coach. Am I right? No, I only if Jay would want it, I would. But, I, you know, Del Morey has to figure out somebody that he trusts that has the same kind of philosophy he has that think that when they come in and get the job, they can make Joel the kind of player that we know he is. You know, the MVP in the NBA, that's an unbelievable honor. I just want to see him get be in the best shape of his life because the older you get and the injuries he's had, you know, you give him the best chance to play his 82 games. But, you know, that's load management. I don't think that's happening. <laughs> Another. Alan, could you imagine me telling Alan you're taking the night off because it's load management? I would, he would, he would, he would die. That, he would say that's a load of, you know what? <laughs> that would be true. that would be the title of your book along with the other title <laughs> that's true that's true well larry uh we appreciate the time and uh hopefully the sixers can get over the hump one of these days that that time 22 years ago when you guys went to the nba finals was a special time in the city the flags were all over the cars and it's still a great memory for everybody here no oh, appreciate you saying that I hope I didn't offend anybody. I don't want to. I don't want to come in here and act like I know everything. There's just things I believe in, and I can't. No, listen. About. I don't think you offended anybody. I think Philly would probably disagree about the Ben Simmons thing because <laughs> Ben wanted out of here. He passed up shots. All Philly wanted was for him to get better at shooting the basketball and free throws. That's it. Well, maybe. There would have been a coach knocking at his door every single day and saying, Ben, if you want to reach your full potential, this is how we're going to do it. I don't care how you feel. This is how we're going to do it. This is plan A. And I believe he would do it. Well, Brett, Brett Brown tried. He asked Ben to shoot. He asked him to shoot a couple times a game. Um, and I think yeah, you, you could ask anybody to do a lot of things. That doesn't mean they're going to do it. You got to make sure they do it. But don't you, know? you think, don't you think like the real winners in NBA history are guys like Kobe Bryant and guys like that, that are self-motivated that, that want it. They want to do it for themselves. Oh, absolutely. But a lot of them had somebody sitting on the top of their shoulder on a daily basis saying, get your ass up and get out in the gym. I'll be there. You know, some some of these kids need that, you know, like I this, I remember I I coached Byron Scott. We brought him to um, Indiana to help Reggie. And he, he really helped Reggie. Um, and I said, Byron, you won four championships in eight, eight years. I said, when you won a championship, when did you guys start working out? He said, well, we'd probably take a couple of weeks off and then start working out. 
I said, really, all of you? He said, really, magic. You know, we had a group that we all understood if we wanted to continue to win, this is what we had to do. I said, well, what happened when you lost? He said, we usually took the weekend off. <laughs> and now, now I remember NBA kids, guys now, they practice Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and go away for a long weekend. Kobe never did that. You know, yep. the great players don't do that. They, they want to be the very best at what they do. And the only way to do it is outwork everybody. And I think people have that in them. They need maybe somebody to be responsible enough to be there every day and saying, if you want to be great, there's no shortcuts. This is the way we get it done. And don't be afraid to do it. Don't be afraid to tell them. Don't be afraid what their response might be. Well said. Well said. We'll leave it at that. All right. Thank you. Great catching up with you. Best wishes to you. And uh, hopefully the Sixers, they get the right guy. I'm sure they will. Oh, I'm so flagrant.